He was a showman. Confident, cocky, the smartest man in the room, and was more than happy to tell you about it. He traveled across the country performing one specific medical procedure anywhere he can find an audience, or, I mean, a suffering patient. He took on the patients that were being neglected, those who were tucked away in dark rooms, packed into care facilities, left alone and forgotten. He quieted the minds of those suffering from schizophrenia, hallucinations, bouts of rage. He made them docile, complacent, or at least easier to handle. But then, by taking advantage of a few loopholes in the whole who-can-technically-perform-procedures fine print, along with his smooth-talking and confident mastering of salesman tactics, his unique trade came out into the light, and he went where the money was. He traveled to more than 55 hospitals in 23 states. Soon, this fancy medical miracle that was performed anywhere from hospitals to hotel rooms can cure all the things that embarrass you about your family. Mood swings, insomnia, sexual orientation, sexual desires, phobias, anger management, back-talking from unmanageable teens, postpartum depression, and so much more. He turned the medical health scene on its ear with his cure-all procedure that wiped the patient's brain clean of any and all mental illnesses. And with a 60% success rate, he was praised and allowed to continue for years and years even after people started seeing what was actually happening. After all, only 15% were dying. The rest could mostly function as they had before, but with their frontal cortex wiped clean, that was all they could do. There was no trace of their former personality. Some had to be retrained in the basic functions and most were mere shells of their former self. These were victims, most unwilling and unknowing, of the Freeman's transorbital lobotomy. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougere. And I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and this is Bag of Bones. This episode contains some graphic medical descriptions, so if creepy medicine is not your thing, this is probably where we should part ways. But, if you're ready, let's learn about lobotomies. Let's get a quick, super overly simplified look at the human brain. It's an amazing organ, and scientists and doctors are still learning about its many wonders. It is far too complex, so I'm just going to feed you the basics, and probably even without this crash course in neurology, it's plenty to feel horrified and violated by the actions of just one man. Science has come a long way, as has the medical industry. With every new discovery, there is a moral code that everyone assumes is common knowledge, but just in case, the medical fields have written it down. Do no harm. But, every once in a while, 
someone will come along, and whether they started out with good intentions or not, things go terribly wrong, and others suffer from their actions. The brain is literally a computer center for human life and function. And while the sheer information we have learned about the brain and how it functions could be an episode on its own, we're just going to focus on these few areas. The largest part of the brain, the cerebral cortex, is the outermost layer. It is divided into four lobes, and each lobe has its specific jobs and functions. The frontal lobe houses our personality. It's where our emotions, moral compass, impulsive behaviors, and our attention spans reside. Occipital lobe is located in the back of the brain, and this is how we recognize objects and it is responsible for our vision. Temporal lobe is the area on the sides of the head just above the ears. It's responsible for our hearing, memory, understanding, and our language skills. It helps to process auditory as well as some emotional, intellectual stimuli. The parietal lobe, which is located just behind the frontal lobe and above the temporal lobes, is mostly in charge of the nerve center as it relates to our senses, such as touch, pain, pressure, taste, and temperature. The thalamus, that's command center. It sends out messages to the other parts of our brain and is in charge of sensory and motor integration. If this connection is severed in any direction, it would cause a breakdown of the brain's entire communication grid. We know today that this kind of breakdown is responsible for OCD symptoms all the way to Parkinson's. But as a bonus gift, I'm going to drop this little extra piece of knowledge right here for you to make this story a little extra cringeworthy. The amygdala. We now know that the mental inflictions the doctors of the time were attempting to manipulate are actually controlled more so from the two smaller clusters of cells located just behind the frontal lobe called the amygdala, which gives actual signals, or lack thereof, of aggression, addiction, depression, severe behavioral problems, and also long-term planning skills. If this link to the frontal lobe is severed, it could render the patient basically a zombie. And one final definition, lobotomy. This is the severing of the connections in the frontal lobe of the brain. Sometimes brilliant scientific innovations can be used in unproductive and harmful ways. Despite how medical professionals might have begun their journey, we are going to attempt to assume that they were working towards the greater good of the mentally challenged, as the institutions at the time were overcrowded, and no one knew how to help these people with the dark demons taking over inside. They were often violent, and since no one knew what else to do with them, or physically able to care for them, many, too many patients suffered in dark padded rooms in their inner screaming. The villain in our story is Dr. Walter Freeman. Hailing from a brilliant medical lineage, perhaps he felt he needed something to prove himself, or perhaps he leaned more toward the side of arrogance, not feeling that he needed to prove a thing, but just to be respected for who he was. Whatever the case may be, he did fulfill the educational requirements to be a top neurological scientist, but he was bored with the industry. 
He took a prominent position with the influence or perhaps pressure from his grandfather, William Keene, who was a well-respected surgeon that served under both Presidents Grover Cleveland and Franklin Roosevelt. Not so much because he saw the good he may be able to accomplish, but for the authority and credibility he would acquire from being the director of laboratories at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. So in 1924, he took the helm. This facility was a well-regarded institution for the insane. With an entire facility at his experimental fingertips and victims, or rather patients, by the hundreds, he proceeded to dabble in treatments for schizophrenia and other of the worst mental illnesses with sodium amytal and manipulation of patients' oxygen levels. He believed that mentally ill people were just too self-aware, that their overactive emotions caused them to obsess about their problems. He would write in his memoirs, quote, I looked around me at the hundreds of patients and I thought, what a waste of manpower and woman power, end quote. He believed that idleness of a vast number of patients, a social tragedy. Not a man to be bothered with too many steps, he was known to systematize his procedures, including a cisternal tap, which is where you delicately and gently insert a needle between the spinal nerves to inject or retract fluid. He, quote, simplified and sped up the procedure, calling it the Jiffy Spinal Tap, end quote. He is responsible for introducing several of the most inhumane and tragic therapies for mental patients in the modern era. His boredom could barely contain itself any longer as he tripled his faculty positions between the hospital, George Washington University, and Georgetown University. His ego thrived under the role of teacher as he lapped up the attention from his popular theatrical autopsies for his students, which included audience participation. His arrogance preceded him, and it worked like a magnet. People were drawn to his charismatic and dramatic speeches and presentations. He arranged speaking tours and booked out venues and inserted himself onto the stages of medical association meetings. He had a one-man show. He would show film screenings, his own photographs of his experiments, ornate display cases with specimens would be strategically placed to enthrall and delight his guests. His medical and faculty associates frowned on his circus techniques and admonished him from promoting himself and paying for advertisements in the newspaper. Finding a way around this, he writes in his memoirs, quote, I found the technique of getting noticed in newspapers. It was to arrive a day or two ahead of the opening of the convention and install the exhibit in the most graphic manner and then be alert for prowling newsmen, end quote. Eager to move on to the next cutting-edge scientific discovery, Freeman's attentions shifted towards the studies of John Fulton, who was a Yale neuroscientist in the 1930s. He is best known for his work with the brain activity and altering behavior by manipulating the frontal lobe in chimps. Fulton was intrigued when external stimulation applied to the frontal lobe altered the behavior. He found that it made them more calm. So he took the next step. He did a procedure that removed a portion of the frontal cortex from his chimps, and with this he found their aggressive behavior dominated. This actually happened because he removed the emotional portion of the frontal cortex. So 
he went back in just to see what would happen and removed the entire frontal lobe and discovered that they became more, quote, docile, relaxed, and calm, end quote. In 1935, Fulton shared his findings with others in his medical field in a live session, and among those in the audience were Dr. Walter Freeman and Antonio Egas Moniz. Antonio Egas Moniz was a Portuguese neurologist. He was intrigued with this new revelation and went home to experiment. He did his first rendition of this new technique only four months following. He went on to revolutionize the frontal lobotomy. His study on the human brain has made numerous advancements in how the medical profession can deal with the inner workings and malfunctions. However, what he is most commonly remembered for was his procedure called the prefrontal leuconomy, in which he won the Nobel Prize. He was working with patients that were severely depressed, had violent tempers, and diagnosed as schizophrenic. He believed that his patients had a breakdown of the connections in the frontal cortex, but he didn't know which part of the brain was malfunctioning. He came up with an idea that would stop the messaging system entirely by destroying the white matter that connected it to the thalamus. So, much like his inspiration before him, Fulton, he thought the issues were created within the wiring of the brain, and if he could simply sever the connection, it would make the synapsis useless, therefore healing the patient of torment. At the very least, make them easier to deal with. He wanted them to no longer display any indications of the illness. Only a complete disassembling of the fibers produced this result. Before removing entire chunks of the brain, Moniz attempted a different tactic. He followed some of the early studies that used a less evasive method. He would drill three small holes and included injections of malarial blood into the sites as well as reintroduction of the patient's own blood into the prefrontal areas. Without satisfactory results, he attempted injecting ethanol into the white matter of the brain. Moniz rationalized that disrupting the frontal lobe which stored ideas in the nerve fibers between the brain cells would resolve the problem of fixed and persistent patterns of cells responsible for producing psychosis. Side note, serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer adopted this procedure in an attempt to make his victims more accepting to his advances. He just wanted them to be less hostile and stay with him. So, while they were drugged, he would drill holes into their skull, quote, just enough to open a passageway to the brain, end quote, and then poured hydrochloric acid in the open wounds, hoping to damage this part of the brain to induce a, quote, zombie-like state, end quote. The next step of Moniz's plan was to remove small bits of the brain with a wire loop that was inserted into the holes. He was more pleased with these results, stating, quote, Even after the extirpation of two frontal lobes, there remains a psychic life which, although deficient, is nevertheless appreciably better than that of the majority of the insane. End quote. Freeman heard about this and had to get in on the action. Moniz and Freeman corresponded regularly as Moniz continued with his experiments. And one more thing about Moniz's advanced procedure he wrote that I wanted to include. Quote, Accomplished separation of the frontal lobes from the rest of the brain 
which removed the emotional nucleus of psychosis. End quote. That's the understatement of the decade. Meanwhile, back in America, Freeman teamed up with James Watts, who was a neurosurgeon who was licensed to actually perform surgery at George Washington University. The two practiced this technique on brains from the morgue, coring out sections of the prefrontal lobe. In September of 1936, less than a year after seeing this new technique, their first attempt at the frontal leucotomy was on a 63-year-old Kansas housewife, Alice Hamat, who was diagnosed with mood disorder and insomnia. They warned her and her husband that if they did not perform the surgery, she was destined to live out her life in a mental institution. They followed Moniz's procedure except they drilled six holes instead of three into the skull over the left and right frontal lobes of about three centimeters in length and then they inserted a long narrow cylinder with a looped wire at the end. They inserted the tool and scraped it into the white matter of the brain at 2, 3, and 4 centimeters in depth, each either scooping motions or circular tearing motions. They repeated this on the other side as well. When they had extracted or disrupted as much of the white matter as they deemed necessary, they rinsed the area with saline, sutured the open wounds, and called it a day. The full surgical procedure took little over an hour. Six days later, after Alice's procedure, she left the hospital and returned to her life. Freeman claims it as a win, and that Mrs. Hamas emerged transformed and felt great relief of her anxiety. But the surgery was considered a success since her memories were intact and she was able to function physically and still interact well with others. They failed to mention or take any precautions to the fact that her personality was also missing. She only survived five years after the procedure and was said to experience language difficulties and disorientation. Flying high on this new endeavor, Freeman, ever the showman, invited a reporter from the Washington Evening Star to observe one of the newfangled miracle cure procedures. The reporter's article stated that, quote, this probably constitutes one of the greatest surgical innovations of this generation, end quote. He continues deeper in the article, quote, It seems unbelievable that uncontrollable sorrow could be changed into normal resignation with an auger and a knife, end quote. Normal resignation, he said. With this positive press, Freeman takes the opportunity to adjust the name of his procedure. He first changes the leucotomy to lobotomy to emphasize the delicate nature and precision required in the localized area of the frontal lobes, and then to pull themselves up and away from their predecessors and mentors, they coin the name of their new successful enterprise, the Precision Method. They continued performing their unique procedure, and by 1942, later altering the method slightly to increase the extent of white matter excised, they had performed over 200 frontal lobotomies. Colleagues in the medical profession began to grumble about the excess amount of tampering and removal of brain tissue and disrupting of healthy tissue, and Freeman's refusal to write a dissertation on the evidence of the procedure turned the medical field against him further. But Freeman was unfazed. He 
Ann Watts confidently claimed that over 60% had improved, no change hovered around the 20% range, and deficits and or death was quietly swept under the rug at a mere 14%. But they remained vague about what exactly qualified as improved. There was no measure of what success really meant. Looking back at their patients, there were many relapses. Many times, more than one lobotomy seemed to be required. Some were crippled both physically and emotionally. In these days, if a procedure is applied with an expected fatality rate of 14% or offering little to no hope of a full recovery, that physician would be out of practice in a minute. Many nurses who cared for the precision method patients would state in their charts that many had to be retaught how to eat and use the bathroom. Some would sit staring for hours, and some would regress back to childlike behaviors. But for right now, it's the 40s, and this was the beginning of a new and brighter tomorrow. Hey everyone, Elizabeth Bougeret here. You know, one of my resolutions for the new year was to expand my cooking knowledge. I found myself getting stuck and just preparing the same meals over and over again. Enter every plate. My daughter introduced me to this meal subscription and I thought I'd give it a try. I decided to commit to three months just to see what would happen. Every plate has turned me into a better cook. I decided to go with three meals per week, so once a week, a box is delivered right to me with everything I need to prepare a fresh new meal. I choose the menu, I choose the number of meals, and I choose how long to be a part of the plan. And I can pause it at any time if I need to. So honestly, I've been testing out the EveryPlate meals for a few weeks now, and I love them. I didn't want to talk about it or extend my discount until I was sure it was really a great product. And here I am. I look forward to the new ingredients boxes every week and I can't wait to try a brand new recipe. Now I'm pleased to be able to offer you the same deal that I used to get started with every plate. To get $45 off your first order, just go to the show notes and click the link. And then the fun begins. You'll see the menu choices for the week, so you just choose your meal plan, your frequency, and then suddenly, you're a brilliant cook, creating amazing meals, and everyone loves you. Go ahead, give it a try. I can't wait to find out what recipes you've chosen. We can even swap stories. Every plate. The Saturday Evening Post reported a glorious future for the precision method by printing, quote, A world that once seemed abode of misery, cruelty, and hate is now radiant with sunshine and kindness, end quote. The surgery was expensive to perform. It required an operating room, anesthesia, a trained and licensed neurosurgeon, full staff, and a recovery area. A full week's worth of recovery. And for the entrepreneur and freeman, most of their patients were housed in mental institutions and asylums at the time, which had no money, no space, and no neurosurgeons on staff. The money and the glory was just not there. Freeman, however, was not a surgeon, 
and he was getting real tired of sharing the limelight with Watts. He needed something new. He needed something that he could offer to more people, no matter where they were, and be capable to perform it himself. He needed a new system. He discovered a method in Italy where the doctor would inject formalin through a tube into the brain after a small hole had been created by jamming a sharp instrument through the eye socket, breaking the thin area of the skull to reach the brain. This method dissolved the brain tissue, making it no longer necessary to drill holes into the top, front, and sides of the head. This, in Freeman's mind, eliminated the need for a surgeon. Expanding on this Italian study, he combined the orbital puncture, replacing the formalin with the tried-and-true white matter scraping done with Watts, and he crudely created a new, quicker, less sterile, cheaper method. In 1945, Freeman found an ice pick in his home, (laughs) not even a joke, and experimented on a grapefruit before he moved on to cadavers. Uh, He's not an animal, after all. Transorbital lobotomy was created. The original surgery was costly, time-consuming, had a slow healing rate, but with this new method, it was cheap, simple, could be performed anywhere. And instead of removing pieces of tissue from the brain, it merely severed the connectors. A scramble, shall we say. And best of all, it could be accomplished by regular household tools. An ice pick and a mallet. Things you can find in your kitchen, perhaps. Okay, I'm joking this time. Mostly. It wasn't really an ice pick. It was called a trocar. A medical ice pick. He claimed that this new procedure was so fast and simple that non-surgeons required only half-day's training to learn it. Freeman explained the procedure thus, The white matter in the lower and upper parts of the frontal lobe is cut by swinging the instrument upward and downward in the plane of the coronal suture. This is what really happened. He would insert the pick under the eyelid until he hit bone, and then he would tap, tap, tap until it broke through. Then he would stab the brain back and forth until he went at it from several angles, depending on how bad he thought the patient was suffering from mental illness, sliding it back and forth to separate the prefrontal cortex from the thalamus part of the brain. He would remove the ice pick, wipe it clean, and then proceed to the other socket. What about anesthesia, you ask? No need. That would require additional staff. Dr. Freeman opted to use ECT, Electrical Convulsive Therapy, electric shock until the patient went unconscious. His partner Watts was not impressed with this new method, did not approve of the lack of sterile environment and the overall lack of Freeman's disrespect for cleanliness and did not believe it should be performed at their offices as an outpatient procedure. But Freeman loved the idea that it literally could be performed anywhere in 10 minutes or less. He agreed with Watts that he would no longer perform his new procedure in their shared space. However, as the story goes, Freeman agreed to no longer do his procedures in the office. But one afternoon, Watts walks into their shared office space and saw Freeman hovering over an unconscious patient with an ice pick lodged in his eyeball while he was fumbling with a black square object. Freeman then 
had the audacity to ask his partner Watts if he would assist him while he took a photograph of himself. Obviously, way before the selfie was actually a thing. Watts was so disgusted that he announced that he was going to actively campaign against any transorbital procedures being allowed at George Washington University where their offices and practice were located. The two had severed their practices together. No matter, Freeman had other ideas. Shortly after World War II, the standard lobotomy, Freeman's catchy new name for his technique, came to work for Uncle Sam. Freeman, being the ultimate businessman that he was, convinced the United States War's affair that he could cure the returning soldiers and could train the VA staff, even those who have not had much surgical training, to become adept at this technique as well. Soon, with so many returning veterans and no idea to help them all, lobotomy seemed like the cure-all. What we recognize now as PTSD became an automatic lobotomy. And while they were at it, other related side effects from flat fighting for their country like depression, psychosis, and insomnia, and even men who were identified as homosexual, were lobotomized. The number of lobotomies skyrocketed over the next decade to upwards of 3,000. They performed the surgery at VA hospitals across the country, including Oregon, Massachusetts, Alabama, and South Dakota, and every place in between. It was, at the time, and with the encouragement of Freeman, a very popular form of medicine. It was considered the cutting edge of medical science and a solution to a massive problem for veterans' affairs. And around the same time, the original creator of the lobotomy, Moniz, was winning a Nobel Prize for it, so it was quite in vogue. I can't even fault the military for going this route and believe that no malice was intended. They were working with what they knew at the time and were overwhelmed with patience. Side note, it is rumored that Freeman, who sat on the board, nominated Moniz and praised his skill to the voting board, increasing his chances for winning the Nobel. He would say of his mentor, quote, His importance could scarcely be overestimated, a sheer genius, end quote. Michael M. Phillips, an investigator for a Wall Street Journal article, says this, quote, After the war, the Veterans Administration were absolutely swamped by psychiatric cases. These were probably, in some cases, people we would say had PTSD, but also more severe diagnoses of schizophrenia and psychosis. And the VA was really overwhelmed by soldiers coming home with mental problems they just couldn't handle, end quote. The hospitals had tried several brutal, horrific methods to try and erase the mental illness from the veterans, such as alternating high-pressure blasts of hot and cold water, insulin-induced comas, and electroshock therapy. But when the idea presented itself to completely remove the infected area, like one would a piece of shrapnel to heal a wound, they opted to utilize it. Quote, The question of whether... It worked is, of course, central to the whole thing, Phillips continues, and it really comes down to what does work mean? If you have a loved one, a vet who's coming back from the Pacific or something, and he is anguished and maybe violent and hitting his head against the wall or just rocking back and forth, and this surgery, the lobotomy, makes him stop being violent or stop hitting his head against the wall, you might say, hey, that surgery worked. 
On the other hand, if his personality was gone after that, and he was unable to function independently for the rest of his life, he had the manners and mannerisms of a child but in the body of an adult. Did the surgery work? Are they better after the surgery? In some sense, maybe, and in other senses, definitely not. End quote. You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people, just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. So, I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or Type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. Not skipping a step, Freeman saw his breakup with Watts as a sign to take his show on the road. He left Washington and made his way across the country where he settled in Los Altos, California. It was in 1950 that their partnership officially dissolved. Moniz, to the teeny tiny credit that we can give him, believed that his leucotomy should only be done when all else has failed, as a last option. But Freeman saw so much more than that. He saw opportunity. He saw his future as being able to offer it to the masses, $25 at a time, and he sold its virtues that it made the care of his patients easier to deal with. He craved the praise, the authority. He was a carnival barker that would make P.T. Barnum look shy. He performed his procedure in front of audiences, flamboyantly throwing safety and caution to the wind, at times adjusting his performances in ways with which to shock and disturb his audience. One reporter claimed that during one procedure he reached in a toolbox set up nearby and used a carpenter's hammer, laughing as the audience gasped at his audacity. And at his own office, he often sent patients home in a taxi an hour after the operation. He believed that washing his hands between procedures was a waste of time and sometimes didn't even take the time to remove his hat, proudly proclaiming that the entire surgery would only last 10 minutes. Always wanting to please the fans, one instance he paused his procedure to pose for a photo, 
and accidentally thrust the trocar too deep within the brain, killing the patient. He was unfazed. That patient was wheeled away, and another took his place. Side note. His lack of empathy and cool manners have been noted in many of the articles I read about him. Another fun fact, Freeman, it would later be discovered, would be known for keeping memorabilia related to the patients he was treating, often a sign of many a serial killer, just for reference. But, since he was a doctor, it was chalked up to 3% death rate. He had little concern for others' opinions and dismissed anyone who had anything negative to say about his methods. He didn't believe in wearing gloves or masks and didn't believe that germs were of any consequence. He would even be known to chew gum while he was operating. Freeman would take things to the next level when he began to promote the procedure as an intervention. Why wait until the problems get really bad? Take care of the things at the first sign of trouble. He began to express the opinion that perhaps if a patient had been seriously disordered for more than five years, they may be unable to be helped by this procedure. But if you could catch it in the early phases, perhaps he might be able to avert future institutionalizing. Saturday Evening Post of 1941 writes, Freeman's pioneering work and offered hope that surgery could make patients who were problems to their families and nuisances to themselves into useful members of society. He has documented cases of procedures done on children, the youngest child being four years old. In the case of Howard Dully, for example, he was an 11-year-old child brought in by his mother because he was too much to handle. Dr. Freeman's own notes on the child state, quote, Dully was 62 inches tall and weighed six and a half stone. He was an average child, perhaps a little unruly, but nothing that would strike one as exceptional for a boy his age, end quote. But when Howard's parents returned to see the doctor again eight weeks later, Freeman's notes changed, diagnosing the boy with schizophrenia. His notes read, quote, he is clever at stealing, but always leaves something behind to show what he has done. He does a good deal of daydreaming, and when asked about it, he says, I don't know. He has a vicious expression on his face some of the time. End quote. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a case for schizophrenia if I ever heard one. The procedure was scheduled, but it's awfully similar to youthful behavior if you ask me. Dully's memories are chilling. He remembers the day of the surgery, laying on a table in an uncomfortable gown and then given a series of electric shocks until he slipped into unconsciousness. After waking the next day with swollen eyes, a headache, and a high running fever, he still had no idea he had undergone a lobotomy. He knew that he couldn't think. He was like a zombie, he said. And even while Freeman's own notes claimed that he is not exceptionally unruly, he went along with his parents to give him the procedure anyway. Dully's photo is one of the most recognized patient photos on the web. He survived, but was a different child. He blames his stepmother and father for stealing his childhood. He went on to struggle with school, became an alcoholic, and his story is just one of many. Freeman saw laziness 
indifference, and dullness as signs that the procedure had been a success. He believed that if the patient was not going to be able to contribute to society, they should at least not cause so much grief. So, normal teenage behavior ranked up there with other symptoms that would necessitate lobotomy. Even though his professional colleagues were beginning to alienate him, and psychiatrists and neurosurgeons alike had had enough of his boasting, the superintendents of state hospitals continued to welcome him. There was no lack of patience. Freeman chalked up to 24 procedures a day, sometimes using instruments on both eyes at the same time. Through the eyes of the overworked, understaffed employees at the asylums, many of Freeman's patients would end up going home, leaving the facility, and others were just easier to manage. Freeman would write, quote, The noise level of the ward went down. Incidents were fewer, cooperation improved, and the ward could be brightened when curtains and flower pots were no longer in danger of being used as weapons. End quote. Chlorpromazine and Thorazine, both tranquilizers, entered the mental illness scene in the 1950s. It wasn't perfect, and it did have side effects, but it also wasn't permanently damaging. These new medications began to replace the transorbital lobotomies in many of the hospitals and asylums. Freeman still traveled about making himself the last remaining ambassador for the lobotomy and would eagerly discuss his method with anyone who would listen, including new ways to possibly refine and improve the method. In 1967, a former client of Freeman's would seek him out in California. She was Helen Mortensen and was one of the first transorbital patients in 1946. In 1956, she suffered a relapse in her psychiatric symptoms and came to Freeman for a second ice pick therapy. This time, after another decade, she wanted a third. Freeman obliged, not doing as many as surgeries anymore. He was 71, after all. But Mortensen died three days after Freeman severed a blood vessel in her brain. Freeman would be forced to stop performing lobotomies when the hospital revoked his surgical privileges. This was to be his last lobotomy. Interestingly enough, Freeman never had any lawsuits or wrongful death accusations filed against him. Five years later, Freeman died of cancer at the age of 76. Before you go, let me tell you one more story that may bring a glimmer of light to an entire era of medical abuse. Hello listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. Rosemary Kennedy, sister of President John F. Kennedy, suffered from a learning disability, seizures, and violent mood swings. Any type of mental instability was deemed a stigma and could bring a notable family down. The Kennedys weren't willing to risk it. They had her institutionalized, hidden away, sent to convents. During a long span of time, she was kept out of the spotlight. But finally, at some point, Rosemary started sneaking out in the night to meet men. 
her father was afraid she may end up pregnant. In 1941, she was put in front of Dr. Freeman and Dr. Watts. They assured him that if she got the lobotomy, her fits of anger would cease and there would be no more screaming mood swings. She was 23 years old. Her father consented to the surgery and didn't tell his wife or the other children. Dr. James Watts explained that he made several cuts to the top of her head. She only had a mild tranquilizer, so was awake through the procedure. She was apparently talking with the nurses, reciting poetry. Dr. Watts said in an interview, quote, We made an estimate of how far we can cut based on how she responded, end quote. When Rosemary became incoherent, they stopped, and another moment later, she fell silent and slipped into unconsciousness. The doctor stopped cutting. Following, Rosemary was no longer able to walk or talk. She was sent away for months of physical therapy and was only able to regain slight movement of one of her arms and her speech was nothing but garbled words and sounds. Ashamed, and instead of seeking justice for his daughter, the patriarch of the Kennedy dynasty, Joe, hid her away in an institution for over 20 years, not informing the mother or siblings of her whereabouts. It wasn't until after Joe had a stroke that Rose, the mother, was able to reunite with her daughter in 1961. In 1969, after Joe Kennedy passed away, the siblings gradually brought Rosemary back into the family once again. She lived in a cottage care facility in Wisconsin until her death in 2005. Seeing their sister caused a change in the family as they began to tackle mental awareness. John F. Kennedy signed Maternal and Child Health Care and Mental Retardation Planning Amendment to the Social Security Act, the first major legislation to cover mental health and learning disabilities. This was the precursor to the Disabilities Act, by which brother Ted Kennedy pushed for during his time in the Senate. Rosemary's sister, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, broke the family's silence about their sister in 1962 in the Saturday Evening Post. She went on to have founded the Special Olympics in 1968 to champion the physical and mental achievements of the disabled, and she became one of the leading advocates for disability rights. Thank you so much for listening today. If you are enjoying your Bag of Bones episodes, please tell a friend. And I'd love to meet you over at our Facebook or Instagram pages on social media. Until next week. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret with research by Anna Krunkeberg. Produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret. 
and DCT Enterprises.